can be seen here. This is a this is a pleasure today for me. I have the experience. I've, I've preached from up here many times before, but I've never done a split session with my father before. So this is going to be a first experience for me today. I, I feel kind of like John the Baptist, you know, he who comes after me is greater than I. So you may notice a little similarity in, in the way we preach and everything. That's because for 30 some years, I sat under him as a pastor and watched and learned from him. And so everything I've learned about preaching, I've learned from him. So if I do a good job today, it's all because of him. On the other hand, if I do a bad job today, well, <laughs> see, I went, and, I went and ruined it. You all thought that was going to be a sweet moment between a father and son, and I had to go and ruin it with a sarcastic comment. I see, I had a choice to make. I had, I had my choices. That's what we're talking about today, a conflict of choices. I mean, this is probably why pastor had you here. He knew I shouldn't be left unchaperoned. He needs, I need somebody up here to keep an eye on me. <laughs> well, talking about a conflict of choices, I never really had, had thought about it much until I started preparing this lesson. But if you think about it, you really don't have a choice if you don't have a conflict. The two kind of go hand in hand. For example, if I said to you, we're going to go out and eat after church today. Do you want to go get Chinese food or do you want to go get seafood? You would have a choice to make because you can't have both for the same meal. You have to pick one or the other. So by giving you a choice, I have also created a conflict that was not there before because now I'm forcing you to eliminate one of those choices. Now, if you were deathly allergic to seafood, that would make your choice much easier because you have no conflict. You knew you couldn't choose the seafood because if you did, you'd get very sick from it. But at the same time, if I knew that you were deathly allergic to seafood, and I said to you, do you want to go for seafood or Chinese food, then I really haven't given you a choice because I know that you have to pick the Chinese food. So when I started thinking about this, it kind of helped explain the passage in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53, where Jesus is talking and he says, Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, the daughter against the mother, and the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. See, before we knew God, we were just living life, just doing whatever we wanted to do, really weren't convicted by it. We didn't think it was wrong. We were just kind of doing our own thing. 
But that's why you can talk to some people and say, you know, you really shouldn't be living that way. And they'll look back at you and say, there's, there's nothing wrong with the way I'm living. You could say something to them like, you know, you really shouldn't be doing that. And they'd say, well, it's not really that bad. You know, they did this to me and my reaction was just natural. They're slaves to sin. They're just living with their natural desires. They really don't have a choice. But when you have an encounter with Jesus, he shows you that there are different options available to you. And he thereby introduces a conflict into your life. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3, it says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The Bible says a life of sin is in our nature. It says we all walked in the lusts and the desires of the flesh at one time. But then along came Jesus, and he begins to teach us what it means to be a Christian and to live a life that's pleasing to God. I began to look at Jesus' teaching on the Beatitudes, and there's some tough stuff that he talks about in that sermon. That sermon talks about how to live a life that's pleasing to God. It teaches us how to treat each other. But some of the things in that sermon are, are pretty difficult to live by sometimes. For instance, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22, he says, Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill is in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, Whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Then he goes on to say, in verses 23 through 24, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there remember that thy brother has aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, then come and offer thy gift. What Jesus has done here is he has introduced a conflict. Because if I'm angry with somebody, my natural reaction isn't to go and make it right. My natural reaction is to, to hold a grudge and try to get revenge. And, and he makes it even more difficult because he, he had compared it to the law that said, thou shalt not kill. And in reality, I've, I've, been, I've been angry. I've lost my temper before, but I've never gone as far as to really plan out and try to kill somebody. But he goes and says, uh, whoever is angry with his brother without cause is in danger of the judgment. That's, that's a little harder to live by. That, that hits a little closer to home. And 
he goes on to say things later in the, the, that passage, like verse 38 through 39. He says, <clears throat> you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist evil, and whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This was an interesting passage of scripture as I started to look into it a little bit. Because when it talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, what that's actually talking about is, is a passage mentioned several times in the Old Testament in the law that was given to Moses. And it was uh, part of the law of, of retaliation, if you will. It was actually there to protect the guilty party. Because in the law, they had to pay a fair penalty for a crime, but it limited how much punishment the court could dish out or inflict on the person. Because it's, it's human nature to say, well, they broke my tooth, so I'm going to break their jaw. Or they damaged my eye, so I'm going to crack their skull. This is how feuds get started, you know, kind of like the, the Hatfields and the McCoys. You know, somebody, somebody hurts somebody, and then they go, and they, they're just not going to, to make it even. They want to go a little bit farther, push it a little bit farther. And then the, the first person says, well, they went too far, and so they try to get vengeance, and they try to go back on them a little bit, and things just end up escalating back and forth. But what had happened when, by the time Jesus comes along is people weren't using it as guidance in a court of law, but rather they were using it as justification to take the law into their own hand and to get vengeance on someone themselves, which that's kind of the context that you near, usually hear it in. If somebody uses that saying, you know, well, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, usually they're saying, well, you hurt me, so I'm justified in hurting you back or doing something back to you because this is the penalty that you deserve. But Jesus comes along and says, if someone hurts you, turn the other cheek. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't go through the legal system or that you just have to let people take advantage of you. But it means you aren't supposed to let your heart be consumed with a desire for vengeance or a desire to hurt somebody else. That chapter is summed up with Jesus saying this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47. He says, Ye have heard it said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans do the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, 
What do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans also? That's, that's some pretty hard teaching because it's human nature to love my neighbor, to, to, to love the people that I go to church with and believe the same way that I do, to love the people who have the same religious, political, and societal views that I have. But it's a whole lot harder to love your enemies, the ones that curse you, the ones that hate you and persecute you. That's not human nature. That's a conflict. Because that's not something that I want to do. So now I have to make a choice. Am I going to obey Jesus and do what is hard and what I don't want to do? Or am I going to just obey the flesh and do what comes naturally to me? I read a quote on the internet that really stuck out to me. It said, being a Christian isn't about loving Jesus. It's about loving Judas. This wasn't just something that Jesus taught and said, you all need to live this way, but I'm going to live differently. This was something that Jesus lived. He lived what he taught. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 48 through 50, Jesus has had the last supper with his disciples. He's now in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. He's getting ready to, to go to the cross. And it says, Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whosoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Then Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Now, first of all, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. At the Last Supper, he had already told him that he was going to betray him. And Judas comes to him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he allows Judas to kiss him, and even goes as far as to call him friend. Now, you all are probably better Christians than I am, but I would have trouble allowing somebody to kiss me that I knew was about to betray me and cause me to be turned over to people that were going to kill me and torture me. I'd probably be like, don't you come over here trying to kiss me. In fact, there, I think there was an old country song about that. You know, the, the man did the woman wrong and she says, come over here and kiss this. And that, that would probably be my natural reaction. That, that was before, before Jesus. That's how I knew about that. So just... Yeah, the old country songs. <laughs> so then they come and arrest, when they come to arrest Jesus, Simon Peter loses his temper and he cuts off the ear of one of the servants. Now, Jesus could have said, well, that's what you get for running around with bad company. Just be thankful you didn't get your head cut off. But instead, he heals the man's ear. Now, I can understand 
healing the lame man that was, that was sitting there with nobody to help him, and Jesus comes by and heals him. He wasn't really hurting anyone. I can understand healing Peter's mother-in-law. You know, that was a relative of, of one of his close friends. I can understand raising Lazarus from the dead. You know, that was one of Jesus' friends. But I'd have to think long and hard about healing somebody that I knew had come to hurt me and take me away to suffer this horrible agony that Jesus knew that he was going to have to go through. But Jesus didn't hesitate. He healed that man immediately, and then he turns around and rebuked Peter. Now, you might think, well, of course Jesus would love his enemies. I mean, after all, that is what he came here for. But obviously, the disciples didn't live by those same rules. If, people, if Peter is trying to cut people's heads off, he's obviously not loving his enemies. You might say, well, I can't live up to Jesus' standards. But I can at least relate to Peter. And, you know, he made it in the end, so I think I'm okay. At least I haven't tried to take somebody's head off. But look at what happened to the disciples after the day of Pentecost. Look how they reacted after they had been filled with the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, it tells a story about a man by the name of Paul, or Saul, who would later become Paul. It says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So here comes Saul persecuting the Christians in Jerusalem. He had already helped with the killing of Stephen, and now he's looking for more Christians. He persecuted them so much that they begin to leave Jerusalem to try to get away from him. In Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 22, it says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but to the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake to the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then the tidings of these things came to the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. Now if you remember the story, Saul sets out on the road to Damascus and has an encounter with Jesus. He gets blinded by a bright light, and he has a change of heart. And then the Lord sends Barnabas to go get him and bring him back to Antioch. Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 says, And when they had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. 
and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. It was when the people saw how the disciples treated this man who had persecuted them so badly that they said, this reminds us of Christ. That, that would be a hard thing to do. It would be challenging to be kind to someone who had treated you so bad. I'm not entirely sure that you could do that without the power of the Holy Ghost to help you. I believe that Jesus has called each and every one of us to be so drastically different that people look at our lives and say, that person reminds me of Jesus. But that comes with a conflict because that goes against our nature. We have a choice to make. Are we going to live the way God wants us to live? Or are we going to live the way that we want to live and do our own thing? That's the choice that each and every one of us has to make every day. And now, I have another choice to make. I could go on and continue preaching for a while, or I could turn this over to my father. And it's a tough decision, but I don't want to deprive you of the opportunity to hear from him. So dad, come take over here. Did all right. Yeah. Take. <laughs> Take your time. Preach what the Lord has laid on your heart. But remember, you are now the only thing standing between us and lunch. <laughs> Most encouraging words. Well, I appreciate Matthew very much. When I had the church in Coshocton and I fell and broke my hip. You're behind me? Oh. I fell and broke my hip, but he, they, mom called him, and, and he came and took the services for quite a while. And I appreciate that. God's given him the ability to do that. It's not just what he learned off me, but what God has shown him. He pretty well took care of the New Testament today. So I, I want to talk a little bit on the Old Testament. And I prepared this thing and I started looking at it. I said, well, the whole thing looks like an altar call. So maybe it will be, I don't know. But I start out in Numbers chapter 10. And it's something that I've, I've read before. You probably read it before. But I never really considered it. And we're talking about a conflict of choices, and, and this is sure a conflict of choices. And Moses said unto Hobab, the son of Ragul, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are journeying unto a place of which the Lord said, I will give you. And I looked at that, and I said, that, that's interesting. But Moses gave an invitation. How many of you have given an invitation to somebody to come to church, and they look at you like you're crazy. 
Well, you know, thanks, but I don't think I'll be there. All right, they made a choice. And here Moses is asking uh, Hobab to make a choice. He said, come thou with us and we will do thee good. That's encouraging. For the Lord has spoken good concerning Israel. I don't know about you, but I want to follow somebody that follows God. Amen. I mean, there's enough people in the world that want, want you to follow them. But I need to make sure that I'm making the right choice. And I know you do too. And he said unto him, I will not go, but I will depart to mine own land and to my kindred. And he said, leave us not. He's even begging him to stay. All right. I pray these for as much as thou knowest how we are to encamp in the wilderness and thou mayest be to us instead of our eyes. You can be a big help when you come to church. All right. A lot of people need, don't realize how much good they can do in church that they can't do out in the world. All right. I had some people there in, in uh, Coshocton one time. You know, God sends people in just to do something. You know, and, and uh, this man came to church, only came a few times, but he built us altar rails for the front of the church, you know. And after they were finished, uh, sanded and all, he left. He never came back. All right, and then my uncle uh, finished those, and they're still in use today. All right. And thou mayest be to us our eyes. He said, leave us not, I pray thee, for as much as thou knowest how we are to encamp in the wilderness, and thou mayest be to us instead of eyes. And he said, if thou go with us, yea, it shall be that what goodness the Lord shall do unto us, the same we will do unto thee. You talk about an invitation. I mean, that's probably the best invitation that I've ever read in the Word of God. All right? But, but Hobab faced a problem. He said, there's, there's something you've got to decide whether you want to go or not. And there's no problem for us today between good and evil. Amen? We know what evil is. All right? But sometimes we don't recognize the good that we can do if we follow through with Jesus Christ. All right, choosing uh, between good and evil, there, there's a conflict between the two. Now, we have to make a comparison, but what do we make a comparison of? All right, what can I do in the world that I can't do in the church? Or what can I do in the church that I can't do in the world? Many times it comes before us, we have to make a decision, all right? Somebody one time says good is the enemy of the best. And I believe that's true. You know, and, and I probably used this before, but back when I was in the third grade, <laughs> I'm going way back. The older we get, the more we can remember the old times. You know, I can't remember what I did yesterday, but I can remember what I did in the third grade. The teacher taught me to always do your best. Never let it rest until your good is better and your better best. Never forgot it. I don't know why, but it sticks with me. All right. So the thing of it is today, 
that greatness or the best is not a fabrication of circumstances. As it turns out, it's largely a matter of conscious choice. I want to make the right choice. How about you? All right. I want to make the right choice. We cannot be satisfied with good, but we need to strive for the best. Now, if you stop and think, we always want the best. Amen? Whether we have a car, a house, whatever, we want the very best we can afford. All right? We even want the best kids. Now, sometimes that that's, could be a problem. All right? But I'm not referring to you, brother. <laughs> he, he's been a good kid, but I thought I'd get back a little bit at him. Uh, anyway, so good, better, best. I need to find the best thing it is. But I want you to look at Hobab just for a minute. I want you to understand what Moses was trying to tell him. All right, number one, he invited him. That's the first thing we need to do. We need to invite people to church. Let me show you the best. Maybe what you've got's good, but I know something better that'll lead to the best. All right, so he offered uh, him a chance to go. It was personal. How many like to have personal invitations? I like to have personal invitations. It's nice when, you, when somebody says, you know, why don't you come with us? Rather than find, you know, uh, hear somebody say, well, you know, you ought to show up. Well, I don't show up. I've got to be invited, I guess. And it was personal. I mean, this was personal to Hobab. I never realized how personal it really was. But he said, look, he said, you can even be our eyes. You know what's going on. And you know, the congregation, I may be getting out of line, but if I am, forgive me. But the congregation can be the pastor's eyes. All right? There were many times when I was pastoring, and I pastored for 40-some years. But the thing of it is, people were my eyes. They would come and tell me things that I didn't know, didn't see. Maybe somebody had a hardship that... You know, nobody knew about, but they did. And they would come and tell the pastor. And, you know, it, it means so much. I mean, they didn't come uh, to gossip. They came to help. Amen. And that's what we need to do. We need to help. All right. But it was a sincere invitation. And why I know that, because Moses was earnestly sold out to what he was doing. He says, if you'll just come with us, all right, we're going to take a journey. It was a great offer. It was a promise of good. Not as good as Jesus makes us. All right, I want you to consider these verses again. He said, come with us and we will do thee good. The Lord has spoken good concerning Israel and, and to my kindred. All right, thou mayest be to us as eyes. In other words, if you go with us, Yea, ye shall be what goodness the Lord shall do to us. We're going to do the same to you. All right. Well, God, help us. Help us to take the invitation that the Lord gives us. You know, so, you know, it was not as good as Jesus offers us. Moses said, we're taking a journey. How many like to travel? You like to travel? Matthew, and I got to thinking about this last night. Matthew has probably seen more of Ohio in his short life than I have in 80 years. 
I mean, he goes everywhere and sees things that I didn't even know existed. All right? But he likes to travel, you know? So, you know, as we look at this in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, see if I can find that real quick. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. It says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a good promise. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burdens light. And I've had some people say, well, you know, it, it's not that easy serving God. If you serve God easy, it's hard. But if you serve God hard, it's the best. I mean, it's easy to do. So Moses was telling Hobab, he says, come and get something from God. And that's what we offer. You know, we, we need to explain probably more than we do to people. You know, he's our healer. He's our healer. All right. If we're thirsty, he's the water. And if we're hungry, he's the bread of life. Moses said, we're going to journey to a place, a promised land, and we're journeying the same place. All right? We're journeying to a promised land. And I can't stress it enough, you know, that we need to invite people to come. And I've heard all kinds of excuses. Somebody one time told me, says, I'm not coming to your church. There's a bunch of hypocrites. I said, oh, come. I said, I've always got room for one more. And we do. You know, we take everybody. Everybody needs to have the Holy Ghost. Praise God. We're not perfect. But come and give something that you can do. Hobab, you know, he says, you know, he said, you can be our eyes. You can help us in our journey. All right? But the trouble today is that we live in a generation that's satisfied with good things. These young kids today, and I love our youth, all right? But, but some of these kids, you know, they do just enough to get by. Have you noticed the stores recently when you go in? There's a shortage of help, and some of the help that you got <laughs> is not much, all right? So we need to learn to be satisfied with the very best. Good is not good enough. All right, I'm going to make a statement here this morning. There is no parking at Pentecost. There's no parking at Pentecost. Once God fills you with the Holy Ghost, there's no parking. There's no, no reason to slow down. God has given us everything we need to live a victorious life for Jesus Christ. He has. He's given us everything we need. All right. The trouble is some people park at Pentecost and they experience a new birth, but not the new life that God offers. I want a new life. I wasn't always in church. I was 30 years old before I came to the Lord. Amen. So I know what's out there. I choose Pentecost. Amen. I choose Pentecost. In John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, Bible said, let not your heart be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. With an invitation like that, thank you, Lord, for the roof that doesn't leak. Amen. How many hear the rain? The rain has fallen again. Amen. But some people, you know, they say, well, you know, that's all you, you do is just go to church. You go Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, anything else, you know, you, you go to church. He said, is that all there is? Oh, there's a lot more. There is a lot more. Amen. Somebody said one time, and I copied this down, Christ dying for us is our redemption. But Christ dwelling in us and living in us is our reformation. God will reveal himself to us, and we can be full of the Holy Ghost and doing the work for God. Amen. And I know it's early. Amen. Somebody says, you know, you got five minutes because the restaurants are going to get crowded. But, you know, some people say, well, is that all there is to Pentecost? No, there's a lot more. There's a lot more, and we won't go into it all today. But somebody one, once wrote something that has stuck with me, and I dug it out uh, for this service. It says, is that all there is? A man works hard. He tries to save with the thought in mind, I'll retire someday. Soon the years go by, and counting the days that he will punch that old time clock and go home to stay. But then an illness strikes, and it's not very long. Everything that the man has worked for is gone. He thinks of those things that once were his, and he looks back and wonders, is that all there is? A mother bears the pain to bring children into the world. It doesn't matter to her whether it's a boy or a girl. She loves it because it's her child. And then when the baby gets sick, the mother nearly goes wild. And oh, how she toils to make a home. But soon the children marry, and Papa dies, and Mama's left all alone. And then she's sent away to a nurse home to live. Yes, and she wonders, is that all there is? Remember when the little boy came along? You just knew he'd be governor if nothing went wrong. When he was small, you taught him the golden rule. And as he grew older, you fussed with him to get him to go to school. But somewhere in this world, there's a war, war going on. And before you know it, the little boy is gone. In a far distant land, his life he gives. You look back and you wonder, is that all there is? Is that all there is? We ponder and ponder and doubt. Is that all there is that life is really all about? Just to live a man's new few allotted years, to suffer heartaches and bitter tears, then to die and all is lost. But wait, my friend, I see a cross. Praise God. It's a cross where my Savior died to give this story another side. And then I see a brand new life, an end to all toil and strife. 
No hospitals or rest, rest homes are needed anymore. Not a single young man will die in a war. And then I see the loving face of the one who saved me by his grace, who said, I am come, that you might live in a life where no one will ask, is that all there is? If in this life we had no hope of God, then life would be aimless as this earth we trod. With no hope of heaven, where someday we'll live, and no one will ever ask, is that all there is? A lady wrote that in our church in Mount Vernon, and I could never find it written anyplace else, so I take it she did. But this was, she was born in 1912, so she lived a life that was full. But I ask you this morning, you know, can you see the cross that Jesus is putting before us this morning? We can, we can talk about, you know, altar calls and all that, and I looked at this whole lesson, and I thought, my Lord, the whole thing's an altar call. You know, God is calling his church, amen, to get ready, because he's coming home. Amen. He's coming back to take us to his home. And I don't know about you, but I want to go. Amen. I want us to stand this morning. Amen. Now, Rich, I want you to understand you've got plenty of time. Amen.